Welcome to uh, Hoover's series, Security by the Book. The, the book we're discussing today is by Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman. It's called Of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security. Um, great book, guys. I learned a ton from it. Um, one way of describing the book is that you uh, take seriously the idea of interdependence, which I want you to explain to us, and you look at uh, information policy, the politics of information flows across borders through the lens of interdependence. Could you explain in general what all that means for us? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for, for having us here. We're really honored. Um, I mean, I think our basic point is the world now is filled with uh, globe-spanning networks of communication, transportation, trade. And for a long time, people were just thinking about those as creating uh, frictions. How do we solve those tensions that are caused by interdependence? And what our book is really looking at is how they create opportunities for power. How do actors use those networks to get what they want? And you know, the book is really focusing on two communities, the security community that wants more information to fight terrorists, and the privacy community that's hoping to expand civil liberties and freedom. Okay. And so what, was, what are the, so talk quickly about the three case studies you have and then tell us what the, what the takeaway, you have three theses we discussed. So the uh, takeaway, well, first of all, the uh, three case studies, we uh, talk about the uh, fights over passenger name record data. This is uh, airline passenger data. There was a big fight between the EU and US in the 2000s. There was another fight over the SWIFT financial messaging service and the circumstances under which the US could get access to data under the uh, terrorist finance tracking program. And finally, we look at the uh, fight that has emerged in the wake of Snowden and Max Schrems, where the safe harbor arrangement was taken down and where the uh, privacy shield arrangement was put in its place, but that is also perhaps under some legal threat. And I think that the three basic takeaways from the book are as follows. First of all, the first follows from the title, the, Of Privacy and Power, which is, of course, a kind of a riff on uh, Kagan's Of Paradise and Power. And it's a riff on it because we disagree with Kagan in a fundamental way. Kagan suggested that Europe was Venus and the United States was Mars. In other words, Europe is a kind of a peace-loving, hippie, uh, everything is good and kind in the universe place, whereas America is tough, militaristic, and committed to the martial virtues. And so what we want to argue in this is if you look at privacy and security, this is not just about Europe being a privacy-focused power and the United States being more interested in national security. Instead, what we see is that in both Europe and the US, you get different communities of actors. And in Europe, there are a lot of national security-focused officials who are only too delighted to have US help in order to try and roll back some of the privacy uh, boundaries. And so this means, in effect, that we get not a fight between Europe and the US, but between these two different cross-national coalitions, one of which is composed of pro-security people and one of which is composed of pro-civil liberties people. And we trace how that works through. Second, we look at how the uh, fight has uh, developed and changed, so that the first two chapters, looking at the uh, TFTP, SWIFT, and at the passenger name record data, we look at how it is that the security community managed to win by effectively insulating these decisions from the places where the uh, privacy community could have any access. And then in the final case, we look at how Snowden transformed things so that Max Schrems, a uh, Austrian legal activist, was then able to 
was then able to use a European Court of Justice action to uh, overturn Safe Harbor and completely change the polarities of the debate. And finally, I think we look at how we are in a new world where people like Schrams, people like data, data protection authorities have new power. So we have now moved from a world in which this is a world of state-to-state -state negotiations to a world in which non-state actors who are not able to get into those negotiation rooms are finding new ways, new venues that they can use to exercise power, which is going to have a lot of consequences for Facebook, Google, and other companies like that. Great. Okay, so I want to focus mainly on the data protection initiatives that go back to the 90s. Uh, that the European initiative to protect data and to regulate cross-border data flows. So let me just restate the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom that you're challenging is that the, the privacy, data privacy issue is a Europe versus U.S. issue. And Europe is pro-privacy and the United States is, is thin or less interested in, in protecting privacy. And this has been a battle between Europe and the United States going back to the 90s. And one of the things you show, and I want to trace it through, is that it's not really, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not really U.S. versus Europe. There are security interests in both the public and the private sector in Europe, and security interests in the public and private sector and civil society in the United States. There are, there are those who are interested in privacy in both contexts. So it's really a fight between privacy versus security in both countries using these transnational fora uh, over in a battle of privacy versus security. And so in attacking Kagan or disagreeing with Kagan, you're basically saying you can't understand what's going on if you just focus on the state-to-state -state level. Is that right at the 40,000-foot level? Yeah. 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 Okay, good. All right, so let's walk through the history of uh, the data, what I call the data protection stuff. You have a dis good discussion about domestic security and privacy before 9-11. Could you just briefly set that up so we know what 9-11 changed and how the world changed then? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the biggest point is that the U.S. and Europe really were not interacting uh, in, in, a, in a coordinated fashion around information exchange. There is the Five Eyes uh, agreement between the United States and U.K., but the European Union and the United States had very different uh, domestic, you know, uh, policies focused towards personal information, how it's collected and used, and really the security community had not seen itself, the domestic security community, the homeland security units, as having this international attention. And once 9-11 happens, that's when they start to see that information itself is really part of domestic homeland security, and that that information is going to be necessary for them to fight terrorism. And it sets up this battle between the people that want more information sharing and those that want more civil liberties protection. Okay, and that looked like, I mean, I think on the surface it looked like a battle between the United States versus Europe. The United States more concerned with security, Europe more concerned with privacy. Post 9-11, what's wrong with that picture? Why is that picture wrong? Yeah, and that's where, um, you know, one of the things that we try to do in the book is exploit the WikiLeaks cables to show these kinds of nuances and these different factions within Europe and within the United States. And I think the best example that come out very well in these cables are the, the role of Wolfgang Schäuble. He's, at, during this period, after 9-11, he's the interior minister of Germany. And what you see is kind of collaboration between him and the DHS officials that are uh, Chertoff and you know, the different players in DHS at that time, and they're really trying to figure out how can they loosen these domestic privacy rules in Europe 
that are constraining their ability to share information. And what you see in both the SWIFT case and the PNR case is they create transnational agreements and the whole or the, one of the main points, in addition to getting the U.S. more information, is for the European security information officials or security officials to get around domestic roadblocks. And that we describe as kind of reciprocity clauses in these agreements. So basically, Europe can't get the data it's, that it wants, the security community. So what they do is they give the, the information to the United States officials, and then through reciprocity clauses, they get that information back that they couldn't get themselves in their domestic uh, legal systems. And so that's the kind of you know, way we're showing how interdependence really transforms the power of the actors involved. But that didn't work with regard to um, the European Privacy Directive, that, did it? I mean, after 2000, it seemed to be working, but after Snowden, it seemed like the security forces in both sides were, were winning because as you described the, Euro the European Privacy Directive, it was kind of a win by the commercial entities in the United States, is that fair? Yeah, so let me just, I think one of the things that we try to chart in this book, and this goes back to your earlier question, is that the commercial regulations about data and the security regulations about yep. data for a long time were kind of two streams right. that were unconnected. Yep. So there was something called the Safe Harbor Agreement that was negotiated in the 2000s to deal with the commercial data. And these PNR and security agreements, they were negotiated separately. And what Snowden does and what's so powerful is that it, you know, it crosses the streams as the Ghostbusters, you know, kind of phrase. And that's where Shrem comes in, because he takes advantage of that. Well, before you get to Shrem, so I want to get to that. But I wanted to give some background for why these were parallel systems, and the, the, the commercial and the security. Um, how did that come about in the 90s and the 2000s? Uh, it came about because back in the 1990s, people simply weren't thinking about security issues and security exchange as being a big deal. Uh, as Abe said, this was happening uh, when, the, when the initial safe harbor arrangement was negotiated. This was back before there was any substantial uh, interchange between the EU and US over security type things. And so when people were negotiating this, uh, there was some concerns expressed at certain points. So that at, at one point, for example, I, could, I remember talking to a negotiator back in the late 1990s on the US side who was completely uh, confused as to why the Europeans would care, for example, about airline passenger data, which might indicate whether somebody was using halal meat or not. It was that this was just this crazy European concern, which they were just shrugging their shoulders at. But in general, they just didn't even think that security uh, came into it. So if you look at Safe Harbor, there's a kind of, there's a get out clause, which more or less says this is not going to affect any security type uh, information gathering or whatever, but this was not a major point of negotiation. The Europeans didn't really raise it. The United States uh, put it in as a pro forma thing. It just wasn't a, a major issue for and, either side. And were the people who negotiated these, this agreement, were they aware of U.S. intelligence collection practices that were revealed by Snowden? Was there any knowledge of that, or was this more or less commercial the, uh, structure I mean, done entirely independently by a different set of actors. I mean, I think a really important thing is just to remember how recent the internet is. I mean, it's so crazy, but when the Safe Harbor Agreement was negotiated, it was, it was finalized in 2000. So the, when the first European regulation happens in 1995, you know, it's before Google is even created. And so the, how, how these laws were gonna affect commerce and how they were gonna affect security was really just at its infancy. But you do suggest, so I have two questions on that, and then we can move to what Snowden did. 
One is, as I recall in the book, you do suggest that as, as between the commercial interests, the, the Clinton administration's internet freedom push, the non-regulatory push, versus the, the, the Europeans, even at that time, concern for privacy, that the way that negotiation shook out is that the U.S. commerce basically won. Is that, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, and also, uh, it's, it's not only U.S. commerce, it's Ira Magaziner. Right. And this, of course, also... Explain so, who he is. So Ira Magaziner is the uh, U.S. e-commerce czar under the Clinton administration, who pulls together the uh, global framework on electronic commerce, and who is really trying to create an internet which is largely governed by self-regulation. And this involves a series of domestic battles where it looks like uh, Magaziner has managed to face down, for example, the NSA. There is a big fight over uh, the uh, export of uh, encryption, whether or not encryption should or should not be exported, uh, which might, uh, you know, which has always been viewed as being a kind of a dual-use technology. And uh, Magaziner manages, it seems at the time, to push back against various forces on the security side of the administration who want to have, uh, who basically want to have uh, very substantial uh, restrictions on encryption. And he looks out outside the US and the major threat that he sees there is the European Union, which he is going to, worried is going to regulate the hell out of everything. And so there he wants to push for a purely self-regulatory approach to things. And again, it seems, you know, so this, this, this is where the safe harbor comes from. But at that time, it doesn't, the security side of things doesn't really begin to be an issue. And even within the US, everybody thinks that this is primarily a commercial issue. This is all about Al Gore's information right. superhighway. Right, okay, but between when the safe harbor agreement, I mean, the truth is, is that US, we know from books, from many books and many revelations, the U.S. exploitation of di global digital networks for intelligence purposes was really, it seems, getting going in the 90s. Yeah. And, um, and, and probably ramping up through the 2000s. So, so the next question, so you just described a sort of classic kind of we don't want to regulate the companies, U.S. Yeah. versus Europe. I just want to know, when they were doing all that, was there any re underlying realization about how intelligence services were using data? Well, I think that the, there's a little bit of discussion, obviously, around Echelon back right. in the... Talk about Echelon. That's so, Echelon is uh, the first time that, the, that Europe really begins to get concerned about the possibility of uh, surveillance by the United States. There are also a couple of much smaller surveillance incidents which, uh, which get publicized. And there's a series of hearings in the European Parliament and in other places which more or less come to nothing. Uh, the uh, right. the uh, problem for the European Union is, and for the European Parliament in particular is, that all of these things are not things which are really within the framework of the European Union the member states have kept to themselves all of the politics of espionage so that there isn't very much that the uh, European Parliament can do except to make loud noises about it. Where there is, I think, an interest... They, they issued a report. Yeah, yeah they issued a report. And it basically went nowhere, as I recall. And, and, they, they, and it goes nowhere. Where there is, I think, an interesting kind of precursor to Snowden is a guy called Casper Bowden, who is a... Uh, he works for Microsoft, and then he more or less, I think, uh, he leaves because he is getting too angry about the... Uh, about what he sees as being the uh, quiet cooperation between e-commerce companies and uh, the uh, U.S. surveillance, uh, U.S. surveillance state, and uh, he starts to uh, make noises uh, in the uh, mid 2000s uh, about how it is that there are some real problems that are that 
plausibly mean that European uh, data protection law is being broken. But again, he's a lonely voice crying in the wilderness, and he reports, as we discuss in the book, uh, more or less how it is that he tries to interest people in the European Parliament at this, and literally in one meeting they're laughing at him. Right. Uh, and yeah. Okay, so Snowden changes all this. He yes. brings all this together, yeah. all these things that were on separate tracks, so to speak. So explain how he changes things and, and basically how it informs your thesis. Because I, as I understand it, at least in this strand uh, of data privacy, it was the Snowden revelations that sparked all of these different actors to really start using these different institutions to really start exercising power to push back. So anyway, how does Snowden change the dynamic? Yeah, so I mean, I think that in, in the first kind of half of the book, what we see is that security actors are using these international interactions to expand the scope of information sharing. And the privacy people, particularly in Europe, who are trying to save their laws, they're kind of short-footed. They don't really know how to, to react and respond. And what Snowden does is it gives privacy activists in Europe a tool to connect these commercial conversations, where they actually have quite a bit of influence and power, to these security conversations. And so what they, the target now is not about domestic law. It's not about how do you shore up domestic law. It's how do you buffer yourself from these transnational interferences into what you're doing. And so they, they are able, especially Max Schrems, who Henry mentioned, he uses this as a strategy, a legal strategy in court. And he shows that the US, basically, the, the, the provisions of the Safe Harbor Agreement are not being met because information is being passed from commercial actors to security actors, which you know, is, not really, is not allowed under the Safe Harbor Agreement. Even though it was widespread and prevalent. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay, and so, so, so then what's the story? I mean, what happens? And this is basically a story about, finally, I think, uh, the privacy actors winning over the security community. Fair? Yes. And so what's the mechanism? So the mechanism of the court. So what Trems does is he, first of all, he, he goes to the Irish Data Protection Authority because Ireland is where a lot of these uh, companies are domiciled because it's got nice tax laws. It also at this stage has a privacy authority which is uh, located over a supermarket in a, a small uh, town in the middle of nowhere which suggests, you know, sort of, I think quite deliberately, the uh, lack of importance that the uh, Irish authorities attach to uh, data protection. So he goes to the Data Protection Authority and issues a complaint against Facebook which the Data Protection Authority then rejects. Then he takes a case in the Irish High Court saying more or less that because uh, Facebook is exporting this data to the United States and because this data can then be used by security services in the United States that uh, that, that Facebook is in breach of its uh, data uh, requirements and that there is a big problem with Safe Harbor. And here, uh, uh, Facebook uh, defends against this in a uh, desultory way and the uh, United States does not get involved, which I think is a huge and interesting... Uh, okay, can you, what do you think of why, why it seems in retrospect like it's such a huge threat to U.S. security practices, intelligence practices. Why do they not get involved? Well, you would probably have a better sense than I would, but I if, I were to, if I were to guess, it would be the, uh, the, the, the basic question would be whether or not you, uh, no, you enter into a foreign court 
uh, details about yeah. U.S. intelligence practices. That's setting a, a somewhat tricky yeah. precedent. So they probably yeah. they can't talk about it. In other so they probably yeah, yeah they probably can't talk about it. And so this then means that the uh, Irish High Court makes a finding which effectively says that uh, all of these horrific things are uh, being done. Refers it to the European Court of Justice, uh, which relies upon this finding of fact in order to issue a sweeping indictment of the uh, safe harbor process of the European Commission for having issued the uh, safe harbor and then creates a, a whole new legal opportunity space for actors such as SHREMS and for data protection authorities to really start to uh, get involved in what had until that stage been an entirely insulated set of uh, conversations between European and US security officials over how best to manage a set of problems. So tying it into your larger thesis, actors influencing power is not just the state anymore. And it's not just the executive branch anymore either. Exactly so. And I think this is the big, big problem and the big interesting question that I think faces, uh, faces uh, U U.S. companies right, right at the moment is that uh, all of this has been magnified again by GDPR. Which so explain what GDPR so GD for and what it means. So what GDPR is the most recent version of European privacy law. It has a bunch of comprehensive requirements, uh, which some of which are very, very ambiguous and difficult to figure out what they mean. And it also provides uh, opportunities for both data protection authorities, that is, European privacy officials at the level of the nation state, or even lower in the case of Germany, to uh, to effectively to uh, issue authoritative findings, impose fines, do a lot of other things, and it also provides opportunities for people like Schrems to uh, take court cases against uh, businesses which they believe are uh, in breach of privacy. And so this, in effect, it creates a massive new opportunity structure for uh, Europeans to start, uh, you know, to really start changing how it is that uh, U.S. or other uh, companies behave with people's personal data. And just to be clear, it's not just how they behave with people's data in Europe. My interpretation is it's how they behave with, with people's data globally because these big corporations, mostly American corporations, who want to comply with the GDPR, they, it's easier for them, it's just and it's safer for them to comply everywhere, so suddenly... Earlier this year, was it? We every time we open a new web page, we see a, yep. a GDPR-sponsored uh, um, privacy consent to check off. So it's it's not just so, so the European kind of initiatives and and power growth that you're talking about is not just affecting Europe. It's having a global effect, right or wrong? Yes, it is. But, I, but. well, but I just want to say that the companies are they're trying to limit their adjustment costs. So like a bunch of these big companies, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, they, you know, they change their data sharing practices. So yeah. European data is being yeah. stored in Europe. Yeah. So they don't, they want to still mine as much of data as they possibly can about as many people as they can, but they are having to adjust and to respond. to. No, my point is but both of those things, both the big American companies, contrary, I think to what they were saying 10 years ago, now they're kind of in favor of data localization in a weird way in Europe. Uh, and they are complying to some extent in the United States. Both of those moves are responses by U.S. firms, including with activities in the United States, to a European regulation, right? Yeah. Or wrong? 
Yes, and I think there are going to be some big battles because one of the ways in which U U.S. companies have been trying to uh, get around this is exactly through the kinds of notices and click-through agreements that you talk about, which effectively say, uh, by clicking on this, you are giving us consent to do this, this, and this with your data. Uh, Schrems, uh, literally within three hours after the GDPR came into effect, issued a whole bunch of new court cases saying that those kinds of consent agreements are uh, not legal under the GDPR, which would then mean that... Uh, you mean not satisfied, don't satisfy the GDPR. Uh, well, well, more or less, the argument, as I understand it, uh -huh. is that you cannot, you, you, that Facebook and other companies cannot demand consent yeah. from consumers as a condition for them using Facebook services. And that strikes a dagger right at the heart of Facebook's business model because, of course, Facebook's uh, users are not its customers. And uh, if Facebook is going to make money, it's by, uh, by effectively selling the attention of its users to its real customers, who are the advertisers. And so uh, if Schrems is correct in this argument... I don't understand his argument. Yeah. To clarify, please. What exactly does he say Facebook should be doing? What, 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 is, what is inadequate about the consent? So what he's saying, so I'm not sure that he has suggested a remedy, uh, a, a behavioral remedy. More or less what he said is that Facebook cannot demand that you consent to these data practices. In other words, this is not something that, that Facebook users can even consent to, period. Uh, yes, yeah, yes, okay. that's exactly so. Right. so the, and that goes, if we can't consent to the use of our social media data, that goes to the heart of what those companies are about. Is that the point? Precisely. Yeah. So, the, uh, so the GDPR rule seems to suggest that you cannot demand consent uh, for the use of data unless the, that data is being used in ways that are essential to the service that is being provided. So Schrems's argument is that the data is effectively being used to uh, farm these people out to advertisers. That is not essential. And Facebook's presumable uh, counter-argument is going to be, well, it may not be essential to the services, but it is essential to the business service, uh, yeah. our business uh, model that allows those services to be provided. Yeah. I, I just wanted to complicate a little bit this question of, does GDPR just make everybody change their mind? Is it just, you know, Europe's pushing everybody around and they get what they want? Um, because I think from our story, uh, you know, GDPR is really important, but it's also the way that it reverberates through the different actors in the ju jurisdictions. Yep. And so, just let me give you two examples. So, European privacy activists, they're cooperating very closely with California legislatures who are passing very strict privacy laws. And when that happens, when California passes its privacy laws, it also puts this new fork in the backs of the, you know, the IT companies. At the same time, sh the Snowden revelations, they reveal that these companies, at least some of these companies, are working for the government. And what I think you see is that, you know, Tim Cook, his bargain is, I can use GDPR as a cudgel yeah. against Facebook. And so, you know, from our story, it's these companies, these privacy actors, they're enmeshed in a global set of interactions. Yeah. And it's not just Europe pushes fair GDPR enough. down our throat, no, fair enough. That's, but it flips that's, the script. Yeah, not yeah. only is it not that, it's that your thesis is precisely that that's the wrong way to think about it. So I shouldn't have talked that way. But the outcome of these underlying non-state actor transactions and cross-border transactions is this effective European regulation. And you're right. And the great, the, one of the best parts of your book is this really rich discussion about how non-state actors and sub-national actors in different countries on the privacy side coordinate to exercise power and about how security actors on both sides are pushing back. So the dividing line is not Europe versus U.S. It's point well taken. Um, so what is the, what is the, you talk about this a little bit at the end, where, what do you predict is going to happen with GDPR? I mean, one way of looking at it is 
that it's an existential threat to social media. I'm very skeptical that that will come to pass, but I wonder what you think. Well, one interesting question is, to what extent is the business model of companies like Facebook going to change in order to try and respond to and mitigate some of these threats? So you could see, for example, Facebook's uh, moved towards a more WhatsApp model, at least if you uh, believe what Zuckerberg is saying, as being in part motivated by just this kind of concern, because effectively what that is doing is it is... Uh, it's getting away from some of the problems by saying, listen, we don't know anymore what people are saying to each other. And that also gets it away from some of the uh, problems about what Facebook should be doing in order to moderate uh, people's communications with each other, because uh, that also allows Zuckerberg to say, well, we don't know what they're saying to each other. This is yeah. all encrypted. What the hell? So I think that we're seeing a movement in business models in response to some of these pressures, uh, which are both uh, European and US, uh, this is going to lead to further fights, I think, uh, as security as security people begin to gear up and to galvanize against. So, uh, and you know, I don't think we have, I think one of the key messages of our argument is not that we're ever going to come to some kind of final equilibrium, but instead what we're seeing is a platform being created for a new set of fights, a new set of disputes between uh, changed versions of this privacy and security coalition. Right. Okay, so why... I just want to talk briefly about the passenger data chapter. This, the chapter that we've been just been talking about, this case that we've just been talking about, is an example where, using my words, not yours, the privacy actors in both Europe and the United States won. I mean, that's my, my shorthand way of saying it. That didn't happen in the other context. What's the difference between the two cases? What's the explanatory variables for why? Um, the security officials seem to be succeeding in these other contexts, at least on their terms of success. So, I mean, a lot of the, both the passenger name record uh, case and the SWIFT case, it's all about... Should, we know the passenger, tell briefly what the SWIFT banking <laughs> so the SWIFT, is. So, um, there's an organization in Belgium called SWIFT, and it is the central hub for all uh, global financial transactions. So, if you make an international bank transfer, you buy stock globally, it's all routed through SWIFT and it, it has a secure messaging system. So it's not making the actual money change hands, but it's telling bank one that it's okay to transfer the money to bank two. And after 9-11, the U.S. government, particularly the Treasury Department, really put its sights on this organization and said, if we can have access to this data, then we can unlock you know, both what terrorists are doing, what our adversaries are doing. It's happening once again right now in the whole Iran sanctions debate is SWIFT is once again at the kind of the, the central node of this financial network. So uh, that's great from the United States. Uh, it, it issues uh, secret subpoenas to, to SWIFT saying you have to give us all this data, but it is against European privacy laws. And so then it creates this conflict between the legal communities in Europe who say, well, we can't do this, and the security communities that span the two that say, we really want this data, and the Europeans want this data too. And so you get this agreement, just like the PNR agreement, that says, we're going to share this data, we'll have this reciprocity you know, clause that allow Europeans to get the data they can't get themselves. Um, and what's you know, unique to both the SWIFT agreement and to the PNR agreement is that right after 9-11, the security actors, they set up a bunch of uh, transatlantic networks of DHS officials to talk about how are they going to expand information sharing. And they explicitly exclude privacy actors, the, the data protection officials in Europe, and really the data protection officials and the civil society actors in Europe and the United States, they don't have any way to, to influence this conversation. 
And what happens then is these groups, they come up with a set of rules, and then they come back to their domestic actors and say, oh, it's a fait accompli. You know, the US is making us do this. Oh, we really didn't want to do this. But we have to because of security you know, the security interests. And it's very difficult for the, to do a rear guard so action to the stop the only it. difference then, so it seems like the difference between the cases is there was a, there was a legal vehicle yeah, in the one, that. and there's no legal vehicle in the other. And that's simply, is that the difference? That's, that's one, of the key, one of the key differences is in PNR, a European Parliament tries to take the uh, commission to court, court sides with the European Commission, and does it in such a way as to effectively reverse a lot of the gains that the Europeans have made in negotiations with the U.S. over privacy. Yeah. So you see, so you see effectively the court playing a do different. We have a, do we have an account? Do you have an account for what the difference we, in the court's attitude? We is? we don't. I've got a theory, but okay. I. So so my theory is that a lot of this it's, is. It's strange, isn't it? It's a puzzle. It's 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 a puzzle. But my theory is that a lot of this is about the European Court of Justice's desire to really entrench itself as the uh, most powerful court in Europe. And here, I think, uh, on the one hand, Josef, it's very, very careful about making moves, you know, because it doesn't want to, uh, it doesn't want to really anger the member states. And uh, the European Parliament was certainly pushing it a little bit with the uh, Court of Justice back into the 2000s with PNR. But then I think what happens with one of the stories I suspect behind the, the uh, European Court of Justice's willingness to take up privacy and uh, data protection issues is its fight with the German Constitutional Court. Because the German Constitutional Court has been trying to push back against the European Court of Justice for a long okay. while. If the, uh, but if the European Court of Justice makes moves to cement its jurisdiction and privacy and data protection, that's really hard for Karlsruhe, for the German Constitutional Court to push back against, because this is one of the big issues that it. it is concerned with. And uh, this allows the European Court of Justice, I think, to establish a jurisprudence which helps to cement its own authority. Okay. But that's a theory. I have no yeah, evidence to, yeah. All right, let me, let me broaden the lens. Most of your book, almost all of your book, is about U.S.-EU relations. You talk in passing about China and some other contexts. But that's the focus of your book. And, but those are really democratic countries, regions. Um, what are the implications of your book when we bring in China and its very different information regime, which it's also trying to export in various ways, and it's an authoritarian regime. It's got a different set of commitments. What, what, is the, what are the implications of your book for China's role in all of this? Yeah, I mean, so I think the, the current uh, debate about Huawei in the 5G networks is like an, it's a great example of a lot of the dynamics that we're talking about. Because you have these communities, the, like the security community in the United States and in many European countries that are super freaked out about what does this mean of having this Chinese company, a private actor, control the backbone of this next generation of uh, communication. But at the same time, you have these corporate interests in, in Europe and the United States that are working together that are saying, we can't roll out these things without this. And so I think, once again, we would say, you know, it's not just a fight between China and the United just States. Let me, let me alter my question. Yeah. How do, and yet, I guess my question, a better way of putting it consistent with your thesis is, I would assume that subnational and civil society actors in China have different roles. I mean, you know, they, civil society in China is not the same. The privacy community in China is not the same. So, give, so granted your thesis that we shouldn't just do, view this reductively as a nation-by-nation nation thing, it does seem like the actor portfolio in China is quite different. So I'm just wondering how that affects. And also, 
not terribly what the subnational actors are not it's not that they don't have any relations with subnational and civil society and private actors in other countries, but it's just an entirely different set of relations. So this is a question outside your book to be sure, so you don't have to have it all figured out. But I'm just saying how do you how do you imagine the power relationships and the mechanisms you're talking about working out with authoritarian states? I think our uh, I think this is one of the limits of our book, which is one of the you know, we're really talking about these systems which as we say at the beginning, they have not had all that much in the way of security dialogue around information before September 11th. Nonetheless, they've been, they've been joined together densely for decades with a lot of cooperation and discussion back and forth. And a lot, you know, also a lot of interchange between civil society, and these are democratic systems. I think our argument, this particular interdependence argument, is going to be weaker when it comes to uh, uh, situations such as China versus the US or Europe, because on the one hand, I think that the shared community of security interests is going to be far, far sparser. Uh, there is going to be much more of an adversarial relationship. And also on the civil society side, I think that the uh, relationships between groups is going to be much weaker. And uh, Abe and I have a new project which is related to this, which is uh, look, rather than looking at how it is that interdependence is empowering non-state actors, how it is that interdependence is uh, creating potential conflicts uh, around, uh, between states around control of global networks. And this, I think, is uh, at least, you know, so this is our other shtick, but this is a more powerful way of, I think, thinking about that particular set of relationships, where I think that the interdependence between non-state actors is going to be much more limited and much less likely to uh, really explain what's happening. Let me just, I, I do want to just caveat, I think it's completely correct what Henry said that, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to get a privacy community, you know, civil society yeah. community in China that's going to be able to stand up and, you know, take on the state. But um, what you do see in a bunch of these information politics debates is that within China, there are competing factions that are not certain about what the policy agenda should be and that transnational interactions are helping certain factions fight that domestic battle against the other ones. And so you see both this can be, you know, the, the enterprise community taking on the state. They're not taking it on directly, but they're using transnational interactions to try to bolster their domestic fight. And the final thing, which we, you know, we're political scientists, which mean that we, means we focus on traditional politics and institutions, things like that. But I wonder whether technological interdependence may play an important role as well, so that even where you don't get uh, kind of swappings of institutions, uh, technological developments moving back and forth across could have some important consequences, especially when you think about the uh, overlap between surveillance technologies, the kinds of machine learning that is being developed in China for uh, facial recognition and so on, what kinds of consequences these might have uh, for uh, overlapping use in Europe and the United States. Let's play that out a little bit. I don't really understand. Could you be more concrete about okay, what implications so you what, see? So if you think about interdependence, you can think about interdependence uh, as being about, uh, about uh, influence of individuals, of groups, and of institutions. But in an interdependent world, technology also travels. Right. And uh, technological solutions to problems also travel. And these technological solutions are not necessarily politically neutral technological right. solutions. So one query like that... 5G I'm, is an example. Yeah, 5G is an example. But also if you think about uh, facial recognition yep. as combined with machine learning techniques, uh, what's going to happen if, that, if those technologies are uh, imported at scale in the United States and in Europe? In Europe, 
One would suspect this is going to lead to a whole bunch of legal battles. In the United States, uh, maybe it's more questionable. And you could also see the uh, new fights beginning between the uh, security community and the uh, privacy and civil liberties community over how these are deployed, because obviously on the one hand, you can see that they have plausible security benefits. If you want to be able to spot terrorists in a crowd, uh, this helps you to do this. On the other hand, you can see also a lot of very, very scary ways in which these could be used, which are going to be uh, 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 big, big questions for the uh, civil liberties community. So here I would say that the uh, interdependence that is going to be important is these kinds of, you know, the swapping back and forth of technologies and how it is that surveillance technologies and machine learning could have all of these consequences for the fights we already see. So let me ask you one last question, and it goes outside the book a little bit, and it falls directly on what you just said. Interdependence seems to be slowing, or, or this is a question, you can disagree with it, the premise. We see increasingly in the United States, the United States becoming, for lack of a better phrase, protectionist, or at least putting up walls to investments and to investment transfers. You see, I'm thinking about the rise of CFIUS and, and the regulation, uh, using commercial regulation to uh, th through a national security lens. Um, you see the fight over Huawei. I mean, do you think that, is it possible that the mechanisms you're talking about, one feedback effect is that interdependence itself is going to weaken? Yes. And this is the uh, topic of our weaponized interdependence research, is more or less that we see how the world became a world of interconnected networks in the 1990s, when people, I think, were frankly naive about the politics that goes together with them, with and that. the possibility that these networks could be used for security purposes. Everybody thought we were in a world of uh, Thomas Friedman, and the world is flat and whatever. It turns out the world is not flat. The world is a world of hierarchical networks which can be used for security purposes. We're beginning to figure out what the politics of that is going to look like, and it's going to be ugly. Yep, I agree completely. Thank you all. You have the final comment? No, no. no Thank you all so much. That was great. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.